everybody, Kendra the Vet Tech here, and today we are going to explore another career path for the credentialed veterinary technician. So today we're going to talk about being a large animal veterinary technician in a university setting, and with me to chat about this is Shana. She's a certified veterinary technician, also a veterinary technician specialist, equine veterinary nurse. Whew, so a uh, CVT VTS EVN. So welcome, Shana. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And I would like to just go ahead and get started because we have so much to chat about. Sounds like you wear many hats within your current position right now, but your your primary focus or, or kind of your primary job that you do have within your mini hats is working as a large animal surgery and equine lameness technician. So what I'd like to start with is just what a typical day looks like for you. Do you have set days where you only have surgery cases that are scheduled or set days where you just do casework? What does a typical week look like for you? Yeah. So I think that's my favorite part about my job is I don't have a typical day or a typical week. (laughs) And anytime I think it's going to be one way, it turns out a complete different way. So what we plan and what we think is that Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we will see cases and we will work up things like lameness cases and see surgical consults and maybe do standing MRIs or standing CT or other advanced imaging. And then Tuesdays and Thursdays, we plan to do any surgeries that we have scheduled, but nothing ever goes as we plan. For example, yesterday was Wednesday and we had four cases coming in to be worked up for various things. And instead they all got to wait and we worked up three emergencies instead. And it took all day. Yeah. And just, it it is what it is. Exactly. Anybody who's worked in veterinary medicine more than a week, I would say, and especially in large animal medicine, right? Where we don't necessarily have separate emergency facilities. That's how things go sometimes. Sometimes your whole day just gets blanked out and you just fill it up with emergencies, total change of plan. Yeah. And, And what does your... So you're a large animal surgery technician. Is is that the the ruminants, small large ruminants, uh, equine, everything encompassing in that, or just equine? What are your patients like? We have about seventy percent equine caseload, and then the rest of it is comprised of other food and fiber animals. So your goats and your sheep, pigs are really big around here. People like pet pigs here too. So we do a lot of pot bellies and also pigs that were supposed to be pot bellies and are now like 400 pounds and live in someone's house. And then things like uh, camelids. So alpacas and llamas. And just, I'm really curious, Shana, on your, your pig cases, what kind of stuff are you doing? What kind of surgery are you doing on those guys? Uh, so surgeries, we do a lot of spays and neuters on our pigs. And then for just kind of like the maintenance side of things, we do vaccines and file down their teeth and hoof trimming and things like that for their owners. Cool. When you are doing your surgical nursing duties, you work in a university. We already kind of touched on that. So probably have a bigger staff than most clinics are used to. Is the workload kind of divided down a little bit more too? So when you are doing your surgical cases, 
are you doing the prep and the anesthesia monitoring, everything start to finish? Or do you guys have kind of separate teams for that? What does that, that task load looks like for you? So we have an anesthesia service that will come and run general anesthesia for us. If it's a standing sedation case, if we're pulling teeth or doing an a nucleation or something like that, where we're doing it standing, then I'm going to run the the CRI. But if it's a general anesthesia case, then our anesthesia team will come take care of that end of things for us. And I'm just taking care of helping to induce the animal, prepping the animal, setting up the surgery, getting into surgery, that kind of thing, doing sterile prep, tying surgeons into gowns, and then throwing stuff at them when they ask for it. (laughs) Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, you know, if you're not monitoring anesthesia, where we do see that in a lot of the smaller practices, right, our technicians are kind of doing A to Z here. What what do you do during the actual procedure itself? Sounds like maybe you're just doing some circulating duties. Yep. So circulating duties. And then also if we have, say, some of our procedures, we need to have one person that's not sterile running some, some equipment. So I would be that person as well. If they need the endoscope passed while they're doing an upper respiratory surgery, I would be passing the scope so that they can stay sterile. If we're needing to set up the laser, I'm doing that so that they can stay sterile, anything like that. But you do get the opportunity to scrub in. It sounds like maybe hold some of those thousand feet worth of intestine in a horse or something (laughs) fun like that. Yes. Yes. Now being at the university, we do have a lot of people around. You mentioned that already. We have residents and interns and students. So a a lot of the time during the day, those are the people that scrub in with the senior surgeons to do those things. However, after hours, we are a little bit lower on staff because not that many people are there at, you know, (laughs) two in the morning. Yeah. Not that many people want to get up at two in the morning (laughs) to cut a colic. So then that would be me helping scrubbing in, doing what, whatever they need me to do. You know, we've spent a lot of time on your, your surgical nursing, but what about the other things that you do? Do you do any ambulatory work at all, or are you only staying in the facility? We mainly see in the facility, but we do have a few select clients that we will see in the field. Um, so like tomorrow, I'm not working tomorrow, but they are going out to see somebody who has I don't know, like 15 horses that needs to be worked up at home, not as convenient for them to bring everybody to the clinic. Uh, So we are going to make a trip out there and work up everybody while we're there. Yeah. You know, I just, I also want to touch too, before we move away, kind of what your days look like that, that Shana is doing a lot of the basic skills too, right? So you're doing a lot of advanced nursing things, advanced imaging. That's awesome. You get to take part in the CTs and MRIs and those advanced imaging processes, but you haven't gotten away from the basic skills either. So, you know, you still do a lot of the usual thing, what we call usual skills, placing IV catheters, physical exams, the regular radiograph imaging and all that stuff on the day-to-day too, it sounds like. Yeah, every day. Our patients, we have a policy that we look at them a minimum of once per hour if they're not intensive care. So I am feeding horses. I am giving them water. I'm grooming them. I'm placing catheters if they need it. And if a student isn't capable or not ready to learn, we have a variety of students that I'm sure we'll talk about. But (laughs) um, yeah, so I'm kind of doing it all. I'm filling hay carts when I need to. There's no job too small. Yeah. 
I get pulled in, in many different directions. So I, I do have skills that take me to advanced imaging and things like that and surgery, but I don't get away from the basics ever. I'm really glad that you brought up that point too, that there really is no job too small, especially from a person like yourself that has the more advanced credentialing. I feel like it's really important for us to discuss things like that, that patient care is patient care. And regardless of how far you go in this career, that is still an essential part of what you're doing. So absolutely filling those hay carts, mucking a stall, whatever needs to be done for the comfort of your patient, the best care of your patient, you should absolutely be doing that. So that's great. I'm so glad to hear that, you know, you're still kind of on the same page with that and, and still doing that on the day to day. And we're able to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. You can't get too busy to take care of your patient with whatever they need. Yep. What about on call? So we kind of already touched on the emergency surgeries a little bit, but you said Mm -hmm. you're, you're a true technician. You're crazy like the rest of us and just love to work absolutely too much. So you take some on-call shifts every once in a while. And I know that on-call looks a little bit different based on whatever practice you're working for, you know, whatever their policies are. So what does on-call look like for you? Yeah. So on-call for us, when we're on call for a weekend, we start at six o'clock on Friday night and we are on call until 7 a.m. on Monday. So we are on call for the entire weekend. We can get called in as many times as we need to be and for as long as we need to be there. The difference uh, between our, our hospital and some other hospitals is that we are staffed 24-7 as well. So there is a licensed technician there most of the time. On the weekends, Friday night overnight and Saturday night overnight, we have veterinary students that work those hours. So they're, they have some training. They're in vet school, usually their third years in vet school, but they are not doctors or techs. Mm -hmm. So when I get called in and how many times I get called in depends on which way the wind is blowing and how many horses want to colic and... (laughs) And all of those things, you know, so if we have a full caseload in the hospital already, and we happen to have two buildings on campus, so there's one tech on shift that's already splitting their time between patients and two buildings. They're pretty tied up. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, say three colics are coming or two colics and a laceration or a colic laceration and dummy fall or whatever, whatever combination you can imagine, then they would probably definitely call me in or the on-call person in whoever that is to help out. So not necessarily something that, that would be such a, a big emergency as going straight to surgery, but maybe depending more on caseload, it sounds like for, for where you're at needing the extra hands for the larger caseload. Okay. Yep. It doesn't have to be surgery. When I'm on call, I'm not a surgeon in lameness tech. I'm, I'm a tech and I'm a tech to do whatever needs to be done. I've been called in literally to be there for 20 minutes to forklift a body into the truck. <laughs> I've been called in for a 13 hour stretch to take care of crashing patients. I it just, it is whatever it needs to be at the time. Yeah. And sometimes there is compensation involved in this as well, you Mm -hmm. know, so even if you're not called in, you're still paid a fraction of your, your salary or your hourly wage. Does that apply to you? Do you get a small amount just for being on call? And then more, if you get called in? Yeah, we do. We get $2 per hour just to be on call. And then if we get called in, we get time and a half. 
Oh, okay. So uh, yeah, after hours nursing was the other question I had, which it sounds like that applies to there is a technician on but if you need to stay for a while you certainly stay for a while. Yep. My record is 22 hours. I don't recommend it to anyone you start making questionable decisions after that. (laughs) I would definitely say so. I think I've only done like 18 hours straight compared to your 22. And that was quite something. So yeah, <laughs> I can imagine <laughs> they're getting a little bleary eyed and wondering if this is a horse or a cow that we're standing next to right now. Right. And you've mentioned students many times, Shana. So let's just talk about it. Teaching is part of your daily life. It sounds like since you are at a university, I feel like that just comes with the territory. That's an expectation you should have or we talked with Sue in episode four and where she's at, she's having her students come to her at the barn that she's managing. So is that the kind of teaching that you're doing as well, where the students are with you in the hospital, in the clinical setting, and you're teaching there, or are you helping with some instruction in the classroom as well? No, I don't go into the classroom. Students are coming into the, to the clinic and our students our fourth year veterinary students do their fourth year vet school in two week blocks. So they live their life two weeks by two weeks <laughs> and every two weeks they switch rotations. So for two weeks, they're on large animal surgery. And then for two weeks, they're on large animal medicine. And then maybe they go off to small animal for a while and live in small animal world. And then maybe they come back to us if they're an equine student, equine track student, they're going to do a lot of rotations with us. But for two weeks, Right now we have three students on team surgery. And so for two weeks, those kids are are hanging out with us and learning how to place catheters. And some of them have never touched a horse before they come into our clinic. So they're learning what the difference is between hay and alfalfa. And they're learning how to properly groom a horse. And they're learning how to stand next to a horse without getting kicked in the face. <laughs> and it's it's kind of a crash course in how not to die for some of them. Yeah. Um, And some of them are just terrified the whole time and some of them feel great, you know, but we're teaching them how to work with horses and how to mix up oral meds and give them. And, you know, we can't just pill a horse like we would a cat. So teaching them these skills, whether or not they're going to go on to work in large animal, they need to, they need to learn some of these things. And what about your number of students? You said you have three right now. Where does that vary? Yeah, the most we've ever had on rotation at a time, I think it's about nine. Oh, wow. On our service. Average is three or four. Sometimes we have a rotation where there are none. And then the techs are doing all of the patient care mm-hmm. all of the time. That's we try to find balance where you're like, oh, it's so nice to breathe a little bit. But then you're like, oh, crud, now I got all this work to do by myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. You're, you know, you get a breather where you're not having to watch over someone's shoulder to make sure they're not killing a patient. Yeah. (laughs) But at the same time, you have to do everything and there's just not enough hours in the day sometimes. Yeah, I I get it. I worked at a practice, a mixed animal practice for a while that we, we had students coming in, vet students coming in for two to four week blocks and yeah, it's, it's such a great thing. Cause you're like, Oh, I got these extra hands and they're eager, man. They're, they are willing and ready to work hard. And then they go and you're like, oh, mixed emotions about this. Yeah. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You also have a bonus nugget of, you said you work with a DVM who does zoo medicine. 
I want to hear about your coolest case or the coolest animal you've ever worked on. I don't care. I want to hear a cool zoo story. Um, okay. Polar bear. Polar (sighs) bear is my favorite. So, and he actually did end up coming into the clinic. Normally we go to the zoo here in Minnesota, our local small zoo, we have two zoos and the smaller zoo is the one that we service. And one of the surgeons that I work with is the, the vet that takes care of the zoo animals as well. Normally we go there. So I, I have fun with lots of different animals there, but the polar bear colic surgery was my all time favorite. So oh, far. A colic. Okay. Yeah. He was colicky. So they called that morning and they said, Hey, we have to bring Neil in. And the, the deal is they have two polar bears. Well, had, he has since passed away. This colic surgery was years ago, but they had two polar bears. They were twin bears and 27 years old. So quite elderly. Oh yeah. Um, but Neil was colicking and they needed to get him to us. They didn't have a transport big enough to get his steel cage with him inside of it to us. So they had to rent a truck. So we're preparing and I'm getting things ready for surgery. If we're going to go to surgery and you know, everybody's shouting orders and blah, blah, blah. And the zoo finally calls and says, okay, we've got a truck big enough. We've got him sedated in his crate. He's on the truck and we're coming. Now they're only five away, five minutes away from our building. So they're not, they're not far away. So we're ready. And they pull up outside and I realize just how big his cage is. Yeah. And I realized <laughs> that my forklift is not getting him off their truck. Oh, no. So I'm in like this, this state of shock about the size of this steel crate. And I call farm shop and I say, I, I need a big, big machine. And I don't know what you have, but I need something with forks to lift a polar bear off a truck. And I need it over here now because he's going to wake up. So they finally come over with something big enough to get him off. Unfortunately, the thing is too big to bring the crate all the way down the hall in the building. It can only get him to like the front hallway. So we finally get him out of the crate and onto this flat bed that we have to pull down the hallway. So we ended up (laughs) with like 20 people and we attached horse lead ropes to this front of this thing and the back of this thing and just team anesthesia was there. Thank the Lord. And they kept him asleep and from killing anybody. Yeah. And we pulled him back to surgery and it ended up being a Bluetooth earpiece that somebody had dropped into his enclosure. Oh, tangled up in his intestine and caused him to colic. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. How much did he weigh? He was a 900, 980 something pound bear. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Not quite he's a big enough big, guy. Uh, yeah. He's plenty big enough. <laughs> yeah. I have some pretty cool pictures. The zoo is always really good about letting us take pictures when we're working with the animals. So yeah. I have some pretty cool pictures of him on the table. Um, That's awesome. Like his paw next to my hand and things like that. Pretty, pretty neat. That's pretty fun. That is, that is way cool. Especially when you know, I mean, I'm sure the zoo medicine people probably are like, oh, geez, that's a Tuesday for me. But, you know, for yeah. people like us who don't work with those animals every day, that is super cool and a hilarious story to boot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, wow. We didn't think this through very well. He's not going to fit uh, through the hallway. I love calling the farm people being like, just give me the biggest piece of equipment now. Oh. everyone had their phone out and they were videoing it was so funny oh my gosh they probably thought you were losing it that's hilarious (laughs) 
Well, that was well worth the share. That's awesome. <laughs> so what the the last thing I'd kind of like to cover here today, Shana, is, you know, I see lots of posts on social media platforms. I want to do equine medicine. I want to do large animal medicine, but I've never touched or been around. I don't have any background with these animals. What advice do you have for these people who want to go into large animal or equine medicine, but they don't have the background in it already? Uh, we get that that question a lot too. People call us and say, hey, how do I get to do what you do? Yeah. Um, so, and it's a good question. You know, I grew up with horses and then I knew when I went to tech school exactly what I needed to do to get where I wanted to be. If you've never done more than anything with cats and dogs and small pocket pets, that's a little harder but it's definitely possible. Um, so I would suggest getting in a volunteer situation. Here we have riding programs for, for disabled kids. My daughter has balance and vestibular issues. So before we got our own horse here at home, I had her in a pro- program with a company called Weekend Ride. They have a ton of horses and they always need people to lead the horses around in a big circle at a walk, you know? So you get practice there, handling, putting halters on horses, things like that. And then if you're, if you're wanting to do large animal medicine, you think, but you're not sure, get a, get an internship or a working job interview situation with, with a large animal vet and just ride along. There are a lot of large animal vets out there that might not be hiring, but there's a couple in this area that regularly ask on Facebook, if anybody is able to go out and do some dentals with me today, I'm happy to take people along, teach them, teach them the ropes. And because you really want to, you want to see what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. And that's with any kind of vet med. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I, that's a big bottom line one for me, you know, when I have folks who write in and say, Hey, what do I do for anything? It doesn't matter what particular corner of veterinary medicine you think you want to go into, please go shadow somewhere first. I know it's really difficult in the current times, you know, with some of the COVID restrictions and things, shadowing used to be super easy to do, but I'm not sure how it is in certain areas right now, but that's one of the big things. I agree with you just going and looking because animal care jobs are so much different than what we do every day in veterinary medicine. So yeah, definitely knowing what you're getting yourself into. Uh, my, My big one that I like to tell people too is, just come in with a good attitude, you know, a good attitude and a willingness to learn. And Mm -hmm. then we can kind of help mediate from there, you know, don't stand there. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. And and be willing to intake all of the things that we're telling you and still keep a good attitude about it. I think those are a couple of really big things too, that I, I really like to suggest to newcomers who don't have personal background experience with large animal and equine. All right. So I think that pretty much wraps us up for today. Shana, do you have any other big things, you know, maybe you see or, or repeat a lot to a lot of beginners or your students, anything like that, that you want to share with us? So with large animal, my big thing is safety. Keep yourself safe. Do not do things that you shouldn't be doing. We all get too comfortable. New people, you might not know what's good to do and what's not to do. But listen, when somebody says, don't stand there, don't take it personally, just know that we don't want you to be kicked in the face or the chest. It hurts. Right now, I'm I'm out with an injury. It is not fun. No, yeah. So just, just be careful. You know, we do things that 
people think are silly. We wear helmets. We each have our own yeah. helmet. We wear helmets when we collect stallions and when we work with down horses and cows because it's dangerous. Our job is dangerous. No matter what way you look at it, they're big. And even if they don't mean to, they can really hurt you. Yeah. So be careful. Use common sense. That is my biggest piece of advice. I think that's a great piece of advice because you're, you're right. You know, the the thing with especially horses, well, any large livestock too, is, you know, we can go from being nice and being cool with this to nope, I'm out. And it turns into a dangerous situation very quickly. So yeah, I agree. Being on our toes, making sure we're paying attention and keeping close tabs on the situation all the time. I think that's, that's a really great addition to what we're talking about here today. Yeah, And I like to wrap up the episodes with a tip or a trick, something maybe you didn't learn in school that you've learned on the job that you think would be really beneficial for people starting out. You got anything for us? Mm, tip or a trick beneficial. So lately we've had the discussion in our clinic about the various tubings that we use in surgery and how to properly dry them out before sterilization. <laughs> and I have found that our smallest fluid incubator will dry any tubing out in a day and a half. I highly recommend getting a small incubator, leaving it in your tech office and just cleaning your tubing and then putting a few sets in there for a day and a half. And and then you're able to wrap it and sterilize it all you want. Uh, We reuse some of our, our fluid lines and things. And so uh, we are having to wash really well, but then also dry really well before we sterilize them. And it's been the bane of our existence to Mm. get Willoughby's to dry out, right? Because they've got that big chamber and then they've got this long coil that never wants to dry out properly. Mm -hmm. The small incubator will save you a lot of time. Cool. Well, that, yeah, that's a good one. Great. Well, that wraps us up for today, guys. Shana, thank you so much. This has been such a great enlightening episode of, you know, kind of a walk in your shoes as somebody wants to do your job, what they should expect and how we get there. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You guys can catch me at KendraTheVetTech.com. Be sure to take a look there. I have some new courses coming out for general anesthesia from start to finish for swine, and then also some art of veterinary call taking. So be sure to check those out. You can also check me out on YouTube with some educational videos under Kendra the Vet Tech. And feel free to contact me if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. I can be reached at KendraTheVetTech at gmail.com or on my social media platforms under Kendra the Vet Tech on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.